Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. So this morning, we are starting the other part of our series, The Unseen Forces, where we have been talking about angels or holy angels or elect angels. Now we are getting into the realm of Satan and demons because we want to have an understanding of them also because uh, depending on who you read, you have all kinds of fanciful ideas about Satan and demons and what they do and how they work and how they operate in the world and uh, so many caricatures of Satan himself, um, ideas of Satan that are just not biblical. And so we want to have a right understanding about Satan. Who is he? What does he do? Is he real? Is he used metaphorically in the Scripture as some would believe? Or is he an actual being who rebelled against the Lord? Who is the father of evil? The father of lies? A murderer from the beginning? As the Scripture tells us. And then his minions. What do they do? How do they operate? And so we're going to take a few weeks and we're going to go over some of these particular things. Let me begin by saying this. As some of us well know, uh, Satan does not have like a little red suit on and, and a pointed tail and horns and all this sort of thing. Uh, if, if any of you have listened, of course, on, to Barney when he was going through our Wednesday night study, he made mention of it, and I'm sure he has in his Sunday school class, that this was a way that the medieval church had characterized Satan in order to make fun of him, was to present him in this kind of a way as this little red devil slash fawn looking thing. You know, he's usually uh, made with, or he's usually drawn or whatever with like the bottom half like a goat and and like I said with a red suit on and you know, all that sort of thing. And that's just not from the Scripture at all. Um, in fact, the Scripture would give us a very different idea of Satan and as far as what he looks like. Uh, talking about his pride being something because of his beauty that he was lifted up. Um, so we want to we want to understand these things rightly. We want to understand uh, as well that Satan is a created being. God created Satan. Satan is not an equal uh, an equal adversary when it comes to the Lord. Uh, he is not. All powerful. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Uh, he is a created being. He is a fallen angel. We talked about angels before. Satan was one of the angels. He is, he is, of course, the one who rebelled and led a third of the angels. We talked about before how many angels are there. And the Scriptures don't really give us an answer to that uh, because in the book of Revelation we find that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and myriads and myriads of holy angels in heaven. But one thing that the Scripture does do is to give us at least an understanding of the ratio of holy elect angels versus demons. So in Revelation chapter 12, and I'll just read this for you. You can hold your place there in Genesis. Beginning of verse 3, The Scripture says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Of course, that's in apocalyptic literature referencing the birth of Christ. We remember that at the birth of Christ, of course, maybe a couple years in between there when Herod the king tried to have him killed and all of that, uh, the one behind that, according to Revelation 12, would be Satan. But what it does say is that Satan, his tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Now, in Job, for example, the angels are called morning stars. When he says to Job, where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? And the morning stars sang for joy. 
So the idea there is the angelic host. That there are a third of the angels that were ever created. A third of them followed Satan in his rebellion. And that means that there are two-thirds holy angels. So they are indeed outnumbered as far as that goes, though we don't know how many there are. <clears throat> but these are things, again, that we just want to have a good grasp on. Uh, we need to understand when it comes to Satan that he is indeed our adversary, that he is uh, indeed powerful. We don't want to just pretend that he's not there, uh, but we need to have a right understanding that he can only work and do within the sovereignty of God. One writer, he had written a book called God's Devil. And that's a really good uh, description of Satan. That he is God's devil. That he can only do what God permits him to do when it comes to his sovereign plan for history. So we're going to explore a number of these things in the coming weeks. But I want us to start here in Genesis chapter 3. And if you, of course, have your Bible and are able to, please stand and we're going to read the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 3. This is our first introduction uh, of Satan into the Scripture. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the living God. Let us hear the Word of the living God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman." and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for this portion of Your Word. We thank You for what it teaches us about Your grace, about Your power. Father, we thank You that it gives us a right understanding of Your creation, specifically that of Satan that we don't give Him too much credit in our lives, but we understand that He is indeed working to try to thwart the will of God, but He cannot. And we thank You that You are indeed more powerful than any created thing in existence, and that You will fulfill Your will. Father, thank You, and I pray that we would have open hearts and minds to take in Your Word and to seek to apply it to our lives. Father, we love You. Because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So here we, of course, are familiar, perhaps, with Genesis. <clears throat> Genesis is the first book of the law. When the Scripture refers to the law of Moses, it's talking about the first five books of the Scripture. Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
That is regarded as the law. And here in Genesis, we have the beginnings is what the title of the Jewish title would be, the, the beginnings. Uh, here we find the, the beginnings of all creation, uh, the beginning of things in existence. We find, of course, the beginning of the nations, the beginning of the Jewish nation. We find out about the fall of man and why is there sin in the world. Uh, there are a number of different things that we find within the book of Genesis as to why there are many languages. Why are there various languages in existence? Well, we find that in Genesis as well as to why there are so many different people groups, etc. What we have here in the first two chapters of Genesis, the creation account. Now, some of this is going to be speculative and some of it is just going to be my opinion. And I will, by all means, let you know that uh, when it comes to when it is that Satan fell, for example, or when the uh, angels were created and whatever. Because a lot of that is very speculative. Uh, because we're just not told definitively when it comes to the Scripture. The first thing that I want us to understand is the reality of Satan. He is a real being. He is not a figment of imagination. He is not just a way to bring, to bring up something to try to scare people into religion or whatever. He is not used metaphorically in the Scripture. But he indeed is a real being. We are introduced to him here in verse 3. And we find that what he does, of course, is to tempt man to sin. Now, we, and that, there's some inferences that we can take from that. One is that the originator of evil is Satan himself. Which then brings to the question, when did he fall? When did he sin? And the Scripture really doesn't tell us that. What we do find is that at the end of chapter 1, after God created everything, and the angelic hosts were created at some point during the days of creation, perhaps on the first day, because we are we read, of course, in Job, that when He set the foundations of the earth, the morning stars sang for joy. So they had to have been created at some point on the first day. But by the time you get to the end of Genesis 1, the Scripture says in verse 31, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And of course, we read of the Lord resting on the seventh day. Chapter 2 really gives us a description of the animals being brought to Adam and Adam naming all the animals of the creation of Eve and all of that. But then in chapter 3, we are introduced then to Satan himself, the serpent of old. So at what point then, if God created everything by the end of chapter 1 and everything is good, which implies that there's nothing wrong yet, at what point did he, did he rebel? And what was the description of his rebellion? What was the content of it? Well, I personally think, and this is my opinion, so I want to make that very clear, this is just my opinion. I believe that Satan fell in the moment that man fell. Because his judgment is not given until this happens. So that's just my opinion though. That's, again, that's, that's very speculative. But let's look at a passage, a couple of passages of Scripture that describe to us of Satan's fall, his rebellion. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 12. Now, I want to make it very clear that Isaiah 14 is indeed a judgment toward the king of Babylon. And as many theologians would agree, that the description that is being given of the king of Babylon moves far past just the mere man. Perhaps indeed to the devil who is behind him. So listen to this description in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning of verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven... O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, this gives us at least some understanding of Satan's rebellion 
that what he desired was to be like the Most High. To raise his throne above the stars of God. Perhaps again meaning the angelic host, as he is called here, star of the morning himself. But it was something that he desired to do to be number one, for example. Make himself equal with God. And because of his rebellion, God has cast him down. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we read of another description. This is a oracle against the king of Tyre. And once again, going beyond just the king, uh, but to the devil behind him. And we get more information concerning the nature of Satan's fall. Of who he was, perhaps. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 11 of Ezekiel chapter 28. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the, jas the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put before I put you before kings that they may see you. <clears throat> you have, again, more description concerning the fall of Satan himself. Being lifted up because of his beauty. He was the covering cherub. The cherub who covers. The anointed cherub. The one who was in Eden. As what we're reading here in Genesis 3 we're reading of Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of God. They're in Eden. Satan originally was there. He was the anointed cherub. He was placed there by God. And he was blameless until the day that unrighteousness was found in him. And he sinned. And he sinned because of his beauty. He was lifted up because of his pride. So, again... One of the reasons I personally think that he fell at the same time that man did is, is that he had been there and he had been the angel who uh, was set in the garden, who was in Eden, the covering cherub, the anointed cherub, until unrighteousness was found in him. And he sinned. And how did he sin, perhaps? My opinion. Perhaps by making man sin. By questioning the goodness of God. By questioning the... Word of God. Perhaps was he jealous of man? I don't know. Something was in him that brought pride to him that he would cause this to mankind. But he is indeed a real being who was created perfect and yet he sinned. And when he was sinned, he was cast down as the Scripture describes. <clears throat> Jesus refers to Satan as a real being. Not a metaphor of evil, but a real being. Jesus Himself was tempted by Satan. When you look at Matthew chapter 4, when Christ, of course, being in His incarnation, He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights without food and water, and then the tempter came and tried to cause Him to sin. He is indeed Satan, meaning our adversary. He is called the devil, meaning the accuser. He has various names within the Scripture that depict for us personhood. And as we're reading here in Genesis 3, he has a mind, he has a will, he has emotion, he's able to communicate, and he's able to reason. Those are characteristics of personhood. Satan indeed 
is a created being. He is a being, a personal being, who has caused man to sin. He speaks, he reasons, he has emotions, he has a will. And then we are told in other places about his creation. We were just told in Ezekiel that he was a created being. He is not eternal like God. He is like us in the sense that he had a beginning. Just as all the angelic hosts did. Created by God. We went over this before in Colossians chapter 1. We read this. Beginning of verse 15 of chapter 1. Talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The Apostle John says in John chapter 1, verse 3, And this is all encompassing here. I don't think that we can ever get out of uh, the reality that it was God, specifically Christ, who created Him. Verse 3, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything came into being through Christ. Nothing came into being apart from Him. So what then does that mean? If Ezekiel is telling us that Satan is created... And then Colossians 1 is describing to us that the thrones and dominions and rulers, all the angelic ranks are created by Christ. And then it says in John chapter 1 verse 3 that all things came into being by Him and nothing came into being apart from Him. Then that includes Satan. So that should tell us something from the very beginning that there is always a difference between the created and the Creator. They're never equal. Satan is a creation of God. He was created perfect. It was good when He created Him until unrighteousness was found in Him and He was cast out. He is indeed a real being. Here are some names that we find of Him within the Scripture. Of course, Satan is the primary name, meaning our adversary. Our adversary. He is called the devil, meaning the accuser, the dragon, the serpent of old, the lying spirit, the father of lies, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, Abaddon, Apollyon, the god of this age, an angel of light, the Elzebul, the ruler of the demons, the day star, morning star, the anointed cherub, the tempter. There are other names. These are just some. All of these are conveying that he is indeed a real being. Now what else do we find here? We, we find how it is not only Him being a real, uh, real being, a personal being, but we find how it is that He works. What is it that Satan does? Well, what does he do here with Eve? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They are perfect. They are upright. There is no sin yet. And what does Satan do? How does Satan cause her to fall? How does he cause her to sin? He begins to question the Word of God. And by doing so, he's calling into question the goodness of God, the character of God. So he says to the woman, after Adam and Eve have received this command by God, you can eat of any tree in the garden that you want, just not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree you may not eat of. Only had one rule. But what does Satan do? He begins to have her to doubt the goodness and character of God. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did He really say that to you? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. 
The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. You surely will not die, he says to the woman. Now why, perhaps, would the woman even consider that this serpent speaking to her is indeed evil and has harm in mind for her? But what does he do though in in questioning these things? I mean, hearing something like that that she's never heard before, I mean, she begins to question. You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is he saying? He's saying God is keeping you from this. He doesn't want you to have it because He knows that in the day that you eat of it, you're going to be like Him. So it calls into question the goodness of God towards His people. God is this cosmic killjoy. He's trying to keep you from this. So what happens? The woman then begins to look at the tree, seeing that it's something that can make one wise to know good and evil as the serpent has said to her. The fruit was desirable. So she takes from it and she eats. First sin by mankind done right here. And then when she ate, she gave to Adam, and he ate too. And in the moment that they ate, the scripture says, then their eyes were opened and they knew good from evil. And then they realized that they were naked. And then they sewed fig leaves together to make loin coverings and they hide themselves from the presence of God because that's what sin does causes this division between you and God. And the one who operated this or who brought this about was indeed Satan. Now, the way that Satan works in the beginning is the same way that he works even now. (laughs) We were talking earlier about just some off-the-wall ideas that people have about Satan attacking. As Barney has pointed out, that it's very unlikely that any of us have ever been attacked by Satan. We're just small fish in a big pond. He goes after those that are the major figures within the church, like MacArthur or Sproul or some of these other guys who are actually the ones at the, at the head of the battle. And not only that, but he can only be at one place at one time. So then what does that mean? Is it impossible that his minions, his demons, the ones that followed him in the rebellion, perhaps could they attack? Well, sure, they could. But I doubt that the attack is going to come because you lost your car keys and you're late for work. Devil's attacking today. I woke up late and then I couldn't find my car keys. And he knew I was just getting frustrated. Or the devil's attacking. I've been having problems with with me and my spouse. He's just been on me. And I've just been angry. So it's been causing problems with me and my spouse. No, probably not. You're probably just a jerk. So there are various ways that there are various ways indeed that Satan can attack. But what we find in that squirrel had went over whenever he was taking us through the book of James is that temptations come from us. From inside of us. From our own darkened hearts. In fact, let's look at that. In James chapter 1, beginning of verse 13, listen to what James says. This will be a good reminder for us. Or Squirrel had preached through this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. Right here, listen to this. 
But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What does he say? This temptation is being uh, cultivated within our own lustful hearts. Not by any outside means, but from within. And this is very similar to what Jesus says. He says it's not what goes into the man that defiles the man, it's what comes out of the man that defiles him. For what proceeds out of the man is murders and adulteries and fornications. These are the things that defile the man and they're coming from inside. They're coming from the heart. It's our heart that has polluted ourselves and it's manifested in things that we do. But it doesn't have to have a devil or Satan in order to entice us to do it because we naturally do it as sinners. How else does he work? Does he work through demon possession? That's a pretty popular thing. Of course, anytime anybody supposedly gets possessed, you know, everybody wants to call a priest. Probably not the best thing to do. I mean, you're talking about an apostate church. But, I mean, you think about this. Does Satan work in this kind of a way? as attacking or as trying to reach the people of God or to thwart the people of God. Well, let's let's look at it this way. If Satan were to genuinely possess people in America, let's talk about America. Let's not talk about everywhere else yet. Let's talk about in America. America is more of a secular nation now. Very atheistic. And if Satan was to manifest himself in such a way as possessing people, then that's going to give an indication there is a supernatural Look at that. And then you have people, of course, that are, uh, you know, I forget uh, the couple of guys' names. There's obviously a number of, of Roman Catholic priests, but then there are some Baptist folks too that think that they cast out demons all the time. Probably not. Because that's not how Satan works in order to attack the people of God. Now, is it possible? that he could use an apostate church and have a demon to possess somebody and then this one who doesn't have the true gospel comes or who represents the place that doesn't have the true gospel to come and to cast it out and then the devil leave that could deceive people to try to follow after since he was the one that did it. That's possible. Or does Satan work in a different way to attack the people of God? I think he works in a different way in order to attack the people of God. Now, I will say this, that there have been a number of theologians in other world countries that are more religiously focused, whether with idolatry or, or whatever, that do encounter this sort of thing. MacArthur has encountered it. Alistair Begg has encountered it. Others have encountered genuinely demon-possessed people. But how does Satan primarily attack the church or try to deceive people. What we find within the New Testament pages, a few places here that give us an indication of that. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll start there. Second Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing back to the church at Corinth. He is addressing a matter that he had previously written to them about, where you had, and you read of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where this man had taken his father's wife. And this was allowed to go on within the church, and nobody was rebuking it. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Cast this man out, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Excommunicate him is the idea. And so then the Apostle writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, once again addressing that and saying that if the man has truly repented basically and you have forgiven him, then let him back into the fellowship. But he says here, verse 5, But if anyone has caused sorrow, he's, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. It was sufficient. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for Him. For to this end also I wrote that I might not put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. That I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no one, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now what kinds of things then would he be speaking of in the context, and in the context of 1 Corinthians, the first epistle altogether? Perhaps the visions in the church. You all need to come together. You all need to agree on this. Reaffirm your love for Him and bring Him back into the fellowship so that nothing else can be taken advantage of by Satan. We're not ignorant of His schemes. One of the ways that Satan attacks the people of God is to cause division within the church. And if he can do that, then he has indeed succeeded in his endeavor. In 2 Corinthians, same book here, chapter 11, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul defending his apostleship. There are those within the church that are questioning his apostleship, claiming to be super apostles and pretty much trying to discredit him before the people, teaching something different. <clears throat> but listen to what he says. Verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. But I consider myself not in at least, in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Those that are claiming to be apostles in the church. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Acacia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deed. So he's addressing the super apostles. He's addressing how they are preaching a different Jesus a different gospel, and they're being regarded by the people as eminent of the apostles. And the apostle, the real apostle Paul here, is writing to the church in order to rebuke that and to discredit them to say, no, I came and I preached the gospel of God to you. I didn't take any advantage from you. That's what they're doing. And he says to them that Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. And if he can do that, so can his minions, so can his false apostles who are leading you astray. So what then is Satan doing to attack the church? He is introducing false teaching, heresy, within the church itself. This is also what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. Listen to how this is worded. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So what does he say there? Again, talking about false teaching, 
talking about heresy being introduced to the church. And what we read here seems to be something very small, but it is something that God has not said that is being introduced and that people are then adhering to, which will lead to other things without question. The hypocrisy of liars. These are doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits who advocate men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So when you have people that are forbidding marriage and you have other people that are saying we need to abstain from these particular foods, the Scripture is saying that's deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Why? Because that is not at all what God Himself has commanded. Here's what one theologian says, you have no right to put in God's mouth what He has not said and you have no right not to do what God has said to do. So anytime that something is being added in, it is not the Lord's doing. For it is indeed deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And this is running rampant within the church. The church as a whole. Especially the church in America. What the church in America has done has to turn, has turned the graciousness of God and the freedom that we have in God into licentiousness to uh, adopt the, the desires of the world and somehow make them honorable by attaching Christ's name to it, talking about the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. There are so many different aberrations of true Christianity that are in the, the world today, especially within America. And what are they doing? But teaching a different gospel. Anytime that you say that God is not who He is according to the Scripture, you got a different God. Anytime that you say, well, Jesus is like this over here, or Jesus is like this to me, and it is something apart from what God has said, you got a different Jesus. If you say that the Gospel is this over here, and the Gospel is not, you're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, you got a different Gospel. And that is so prevalent within so many churches. Many churches deny the triune nature of God. Many churches will add a plus-plus to salvation. Yes, you're saved by faith, plus this. You're saved by grace, plus this. You're saved by Christ, plus this. They always add the plus-plus. Or they say that, as one person said, God to me is like the genie in Aladdin. Which would give you whatever it is that you desire. That's not the God of Scripture. Others have this very small view of God to say, well, prayer is giving God permission to act on earth. Prayer is giving God permission to act on earth? What kind of nonsense is that? That is denying His sovereignty. That is denying His power. That is denying the fact of Him being over everything and His providence which is working in everything at all times. Making it out like God's just here for you. Everything God does is first and foremost for His own glory. Why is it that Christ died for sinners? Was it to save us? Yes, it was. But first and foremost, it was to glorify the Father. We are here for Him. Not He for us. You take some of the cults that are in the world today, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. They have altogether a different Gospel, a different God, a different Jesus. They don't have the truth. And how is it that this occurred? Because Satan can enter in into somebody's mind some type of a heresy or false teaching that they then divert from true Christianity. That's how Satan operates. And the Apostle says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. We know how he works. 
by attacking the church with division and false teaching. And by all means, we can attack the church with persecution. Sure. He's done that all through history. But the very thing that Satan cannot do is extinguish the church. He don't have the power to do that. He can persecute the church, but it's in times of great persecution that the church grows in spite of the persecution. It weeds away all the nominal Christians and it really draws a line in the sand. And the church grows as a result. Back here in Genesis 3, this is, this is how Satan operated with Eve. Putting in her mind something different than what God had actually said. Introducing a new kind of a teaching or a new kind of a command or a new view on God. But what else do we learn here? Not only of the reality of Satan, not only of how he works and operates, but we also find in this one passage that he is a defeated devil. After Adam and Eve have has taken of the fruit, they have eaten, and here comes God walking in the cool of the day, which should be evident to us that this is probably a, a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, because the Scripture makes very clear no one has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. So anytime somebody saw God in the Old Testament, it was not God the Father, it was indeed God the Son. And we talked about the angel of the Lord as well already. But what then happens after Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then he says to the woman, what is this that you have done? The serpent deceived me. And then what does God say? He looks then at the serpent and he pronounces judgment upon him. And you have to understand what has happened as well because this is really showing the grace of God. Because he's already told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. You're going to die if you eat of that fruit. And indeed they did. But what grace God has. In the times that we have given in to the schemes of Satan and followed after wrong teachings or whatever the case has been, you can find the grace of God here as you truly repent. But something amazing is happening here between Eve and Satan. Why does he say, I'm going to put enmity between you and her? Why would that be necessary? Because if you really think about everything that's happened here, Eve and Adam, but Eve has allied herself with Satan in rebellion against God. She has allied herself with Satan in rebellion against God. But what does God say? In spite of that, in spite of what she has done, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Your seed and her seed. What does He say? What's He saying? She allied herself with you in rebellion against me, but you can't have it. Because I'm going to redeem her. Because her seed is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. The judgment for Satan has already been pronounced in the third chapter. And what grace that you see there. Yeah, she rebelled against me. She's not yours. She's mine. And I'm going to redeem her. And you have the first announcement of the Gospel there. He shall bruise you on the head or crush your head. And you're going to bruise His heel. The defeat of Satan being introduced already in the very first book of the Bible. Or at least the first book of the law. You know, many theologians think that the very first book of the Bible is probably Job. 
Satan is a defeated devil. We read of many Scriptures within the New Testament, some that we have already been over before, where Jesus would say in John chapter 12, Now the time has come for the ruler of this world to be cast down and to be judged. And He's talking about in view of His imminent death and resurrection, that He's going to be cast down and judged. We read of another passage very familiar to us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that the one who had the power of death, which is Satan, God has rendered him, Christ has rendered him powerless. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, and the uncircumcised transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What is he talking about? He's talking about the resurrection of Christ, his completed work and resurrection. In doing so, in the resurrection of Christ, after having completed the work that the Father gave him to do, he said he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, or as some of your translations may say, a public spectacle having triumphed over them. The Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that Christ, having seated at the right hand of God, is above all rule and authority in this world, which includes the angelic host. He says in Romans chapter 16 that of Satan being crushed under your feet. Alistair Begg says this, checkmate has already occurred on the chessboard of life. Now, what he does say and go on to say is that though checkmate has occurred on the chessboard of life as far as Christ defeating Satan, that as some of us play chess, that we recognize we see the end and we see the checkmate, but there's still a few moves that we try to do. And that's what Satan tries to do. This checkmate occurred at the cross. And His final doom will be, of course, when Christ returns. He is a defeated devil. So what then does this mean for us? Well, the Scripture tells us in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What are we to do in light of all these things, of the reality of Satan, of how he works, and the fact of, in reality, of his defeat? What do we do? Do we go around trying to find demons and try to cast them out? No, we're never commanded to do that. What does it say? Resist. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is also what the Apostle Peter says to resist Satan. Put on the full armor of God. Stand firm and resist. What does that mean for the people of God? Can Satan do things to the people of God? Can he possess the people of God? No, he cannot do that. First Peter chapter 5, beginning of verse 8, says this, Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. Here he is defeated. 
He can only do what He can do. A couple of theologians would describe it as such. Satan is like a dog on a leash. He can only go as far as that leash will allow him to go. Because he's chained to the cross. If that leash or that chain only goes 15 feet and you're 16 feet out, you're fine. Why? Because he has been bound by his Creator. He cannot do any more than His Creator allows Him to do, which demonstrates for us that He's limited in His activities. He can still do things, but even when He does them, He's still under the sovereign hand of God. Again, He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know the future except His demise. If He had known what was going to happen by enticing Judas in order to sell Him out, He would have never done it because that just sealed His defeat. The work of Christ. We don't want to give Him opportunity. And the Apostle says that, of course, and he says it within the context of a marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you will not be tempted and give Satan an opportunity. If we get too close to temptations and we give Him an opportunity, or His minions... And of course, things could happen and we could fall into terrible sin. But we are to resist Him. Resist Him and He will flee from you. Stand firm. Trust in God and trust in His Word and do the things that you know to be right. And when temptation comes, recognize that there's always a way of escape. And that's what the Apostle actually does say. For no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are capable, but with every temptation will make a way of escape. This isn't talking about suffering. This isn't talking about trials or tribulations because people will say that. God will not put more on you than you can handle. He never says that, but He does say it in the context of temptation. No temptation will be as such that you can be overwhelmed by it, but there's always a way of escape. So take the way of escape. Trust that God is indeed good and cling to what He actually says in His Word. Stand firm. Wear the armor of God and resist the devil. We will stop there and we will continue our series here in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank You for the truth that we find in Your Word concerning our adversary. He is indeed powerful. and He is the epitome of evil and wickedness. He was a murderer from the beginning as He tempts man into sin. And as a result, death passes upon all men in condemnation. But Father, He's not more powerful than You. And Your Word says that greater is He that is in Me than He that is in the world. And this is true of all the people of God who have the Holy Spirit residing within them. Father, let us not give Him no more credit than what He deserves. But to understand that many of the problems that we have within our own lives come from within. Come from the rudiments of the old man. Father, help to continue to sanctify us and to cultivate within us an even greater trust for our sovereign God. A greater confidence in You to trust what You say, to actually believe it, and to follow through with it. For when the time comes that Satan's minions entice us to do something, or entice us with new doctrine or divisions, that we can stand firm in the faith not waver. Thank you that he's limited. Thank you that he can only do what you allow. But everything he does is according to your sovereign will. Because you are God, he is not. And no one can thwart your will. 
Father, let us be encouraged by this this day and be comforted to know that we ought to fear You more than this created being. We love You. We give You all the praise and the honor for Christ and His defeat of our enemy. For the victory that He has, has taken part in. His victory. We are able to take part in. He has triumphed and has the ultimate victory. And because You have granted us the privilege of being in Him, we also partake of that victory. So we thank You, Father, and we honor You this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.